When you've got batteries that can last 3.6 million kilometers, that's 10 times the average life of a European car today. When you have that, it then says, whoa, hang on a sec. I've got to completely rethink how I do cars. Hello, and welcome to The Growth Business, a business podcast sponsored by InCloud Solutions, the center of excellence for mid-market ERP software, business by design. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Tom Raftery. Global Vice President for SAP, a futurist and innovation evangelist, Tom is a keynote speaker, influencer and podcast host. His podcasts include Climate 21 and the Digital Supply Chain. He's also host of the Tech for Good live show. Tom, welcome. Lucy, thank you so much for having me on the show. So am I right in thinking you live in Spain? Indeed, yeah. I live in a place called Mairena del Aljarafe, which is essentially a, a dormitory town of the city of Seville. It's just at the end of the metro line. Uh, my, my house is about 500 metres from the metro. I can walk out the front door, be in the centre of Seville in 15, 20 minutes. It's, it's gorgeous. Sounds amazing. Your accent would suggest that you weren't born and brought up in Spain. <laughs> no, indeed not. No, I'm from Cork in Ireland. And uh, I moved to Spain in 2008 for, you know, personal rather than professional reasons. And actually, when I moved here, um, I had several businesses in Cork at the time that I had to sell my interests in. And I didn't speak Spanish. So I, I had to find a job that would allow me to work remotely from Spain through English. Uh, so that was uh, how I got into being an industry analyst. So I, I joined a company called Redmonk. Uh, and I was I headed up the research arm of Redmonk that concentrated on energy and sustainability because I had a, a name for myself in that space already, uh, and we called that Green Monk. So I, I headed up Green Monk for a number of years before I left and was recruited into SAP. Maybe that's where we should take the conversation then, because you you seem to have sort of two strings to your bow. I'm sure you've got many more, but um, one is going in the sustainability in the green direction and the other going in the supply chain direction, both of which are absolutely massive stories at the moment. Yeah, indeed, yeah. But if we run with the green idea, you have a podcast dedicated to it. How are you fitting that with, with your role as an SAP evangelist? Tell me about the kind of intersection of big business and green technology. The whole idea of sustainability is something that's core to who I am. It's something that I feel strongly about and, and have been passionate about since I was a kid. Now, I, I worked in a wildlife park in Ireland uh, called Photo Wildlife Park. I worked there many summers when I was a kid as well. It, it is who I am. And so SAP set up this project called Climate 21 last year. And what Climate 21 is, is it's a huge project of SAPs where we are coding into the ERP software that all our customers use, the ability to uh, calculate and produce a company's climate emissions. So we're codifying carbon emissions, climate emissions in people's business processes. So they can then see them and they can calculate them, they can report them, but also they can look down their supply chain and see the implications of decisions they make in, in purchasing and, and supply. We say in SAP that we are exemplars and enablers. And the exemplar part is very straightforward. The exemplar is, yes, our carbon emissions or our climate emissions, we'll stick with carbon, our carbon emissions per annum are around 300,000 tonnes. You know, and for a company with 100,000 people, that's actually not a lot. And of course, 
Every year we're reducing it five to 10%. And, you know, that's nice. Let's say we reduce it 10%, that's 30,000 tons. Uh, you know, that gets us down to 270. That's nice, but in the scheme of things, it's not even a drop in the ocean. So that's the exemplar side. And we do, I mean, we, we, we publish all the ways we get our emissions down and we, we make it all transparent and, and it's all audited and the whole thing. So that's, that's the exemplar side. It's nice. It's an absolute have to have, but in the scheme of global emissions, it's nada. On the other hand, we have the enabler side. And this is where the Climate 21 project comes into its own because most of the world's biggest emitters and most big companies anyway, use our software. And right there, we've got a huge lever because if we can help these organizations reduce their climate footprint by even one-tenth of one percent, it's orders of magnitude greater than our own carbon emissions. So, and obviously our, our, our aim is to go way beyond one-tenth of one percent. But if we're helping companies calculate and report their emissions and see in their supply chain where their carbon is coming from, they can then make more educated decisions on how best to avoid that carbon and how to choose lighter carbon options. So right there, it's, it's going to be a, a big thing. And your, your question was about big businesses. And, you know, that's a big part of the Climate 21 podcast. It is to find big businesses who have had successful carbon reduction strategies and allow them to tell their story on the podcast to educate and inspire others to follow them and to try out similar strategies in their own organizations. Because obviously I'll be thinking about what are the implications for um, smaller businesses, small to medium-sized businesses. I mean, one of the ideas is presumably that they will need that data at some point, that maybe it will become compulsory to report on that data. No doubt. It's already starting to be so. I mean, one of the guests I had on the podcast is a guy called Lucas Joppa. And Lucas is the chief environmental officer for Microsoft. And, you know, Microsoft are, you know, pretty much the gold standard in this space. Uh, and one of the things they did very early on back in 2012 was they introduced a carbon fee within the organization. And what that meant was if you were undertaking any project within Microsoft, you didn't just have to have a financial budget for it. You also had to report on the carbon emissions that that project would entail and pay for them. They had a carbon price for everything that happened within the company and everyone was liable for it. So no matter what you did, you had to find out what the carbon price of doing it was and you had to pay that carbon price. And the money from that carbon uh, fee went to the sustainability organization, which then allowed them to roll out more sustainable projects. So it was really, really clever, but they're taking that a step further now and they're pushing that out to their supply chain. So now if you are a supplier to Microsoft, you are going to have to be able to calculate and report your carbon emissions. And Microsoft will make decisions on who to purchase from based on the carbon emissions associated with that. And this is not something that they're going to, you know, hit people over the head with, with a hammer. They're going to work with their supply chain to help them figure out how best to report their emissions. So they want to bring their supply chain with them rather than having it be a, a battle between them. 
And when you turn that on its head, it means that companies like us, we often receive questions asking us how green our data warehouses are, etc. So SAP have to be able to answer all those similar kind of questions before we get their business. It's going to be exactly that. More and more organizations are going to make it part of the RFP process that you can report your carbon emissions. And then, you know, you'll be chosen or not, depending on what those are and what those are of your competitors. So it'll be it'll be very much in organizations' interest to be able to calculate and to be able to reduce their carbon emissions. So some of what you've said has overlapped with your interest in the supply chain. It's good fun. I love it. Uh, I mean, we we cover in SAP, we cover all aspects of supply chain. It's everything from the initial design of the project, all the engineering involved, uh, then the planning, the manufacturing, the delivery with all the logistics involved there, and finally the operation of the product because the operation of the product, when you go to a kind of a product as a service uh, market, which is where we're heading now with digital transformations, more and more organizations are selling the outcome of the product rather than the product itself. And so we're heavily involved in that too. We help organizations do that kind of thing as well. A good example of that is like Philips Lighting. Uh, they're actually now rebranded as Signify. So Signify Lighting, uh, they instead of selling light bulbs, they sell lumens of light delivered. So essentially, they will give you all the lumieres, all the light fittings, etc. that you need, and then they will charge you for the light that comes from those, which means those lights are connected uh, and they're constantly sending data back to Signify. So Signify know exactly how much light was delivered and they bill you accordingly. And of course, that means it's a beautiful uh, conjunction of wants and needs. Uh, You're getting the light you need when you want it all the time. The light bulbs won't fail. And the light bulbs won't fail because Signify wants the revenue from those light bulbs. So they make sure that if a light bulb looks like it's going to fail, that they get an engineer to site, swap it out with a new one straight away. And of course, if you remember back to like say 2005, 2006, when everyone was using incandescent bulbs, the lifetime of an incandescent bulb was one to 2,000 working hours. Now, LEDs, the working lifetime is 50 to 100,000 hours. And a big part of that is, well, A, LEDs had a longer lifespan anyway, but because now we're moving into a product as a service route, it means the likes of Signify and everyone else in that space They own the bulbs, so they make sure there's no inbuilt obsolescence. They make sure those bulbs last as long as possible, which wasn't in their interest in the past, but now absolutely is. So it's a huge sustainability win for everyone. That is fascinating, the whole idea of this outcome economy um, being very green, very sustainable. I heard you talking about cars and um, that being a similar story. Correct. Correct. Yeah. There's and, and this hasn't happened yet, but I, I can see that the market heading this way. Uh, part, of the, part of what I do as, as a futurist is I, I look at what's happened in the past. I, looked, I look at what's happening now, and then I kind of project forward where things are likely to go. And very much I see the automotive industry is under huge disruption at the moment. They're being hit by four megatrends, what are called the case megatrends, simultaneously. And that is, they're called the CASE megatrends because it's an acronym. CASE, C-A-S-E, stands for Connected, Autonomous, Shared, 
and electric. So you've got these four different things hitting the automotive industry at the same time. Uh, connected isn't hugely disruptive, really. It just means that you know cars ship with a SIM card built in now, and they're constantly talking to the to the the manufacturer or to some cloud-based service. Uh, I, I have an app on my phone, for example. I can turn on the heating in my car in the morning before I get into the car, so it's all nice and toasty when I get there. Or being in Seville in the middle of summer, I can turn on the cooling, so it's nice and cool when I get into the car. You know that kind of thing. So those are nice, but there's a lot of data associated with that. But I'm getting off topic, um, one of the big things is we're shifting to electric cars. And the shift to the electrification of transportation is another huge sustainability win, but it's also changing how automotive uh, manufacturers are having to think about their income. Because when they sold a car in the past, they would be guaranteed roughly an average income of about 30,000 pounds or euros over the lifetime of the vehicle after the sale in things like parts and spares and service and maintenance and all that, all that kind of thing. But now, as we shift to electric vehicles, that income falls enormously because A, electric vehicles require far less service and maintenance. B, we're getting far more intelligence built into cars with things like intelligent lane assist, intelligent parking, uh, emergency brake assist, all these kind of features, uh, which means we're getting, we're crashing less. So repairs, the, the income from repairs is dropping. And as cars are becoming more autonomous and people are buying fewer cars, that the number of those 30,000s is shrinking as well. So automotive manufacturers are looking at shrinking income. So how to get over that? Well, the way to get over that is to do what the light bulb manufacturers did and stop selling light bulbs in their case, cars in this case, and shift to product as a service, in this case, vehicles as a service. And you can see if you, if you go to the Volvo website today or the Volkswagen website today, they've got rental options where instead of you purchasing the car from them, you can rent it. And you can rent it for a period of, you know, three, four, five years. Uh, if I go to, I don't know what the, the price in the UK is, but if I go to the uh, Spanish Volkswagen website now, I can get an ID3, their new electric car, for a flat fee of about 400 euros per month. And that's for a four-year lease or rental or whatever we're calling it. It's called my rental, I think, or my rent. Yeah, my, my rental. So you can get it for a four-year rental. Uh, for 400, roughly 400 euros per month, depending on how you configure it. And that covers the vehicle. It covers uh, insurance. It covers maintenance. It covers uh, 12,000 kilometers driven per year. And it also covers the management of tolls and fines. Well, and they'll pay your parking fine. <laughs> well, they'll manage the payment and then they'll bill you as part of your monthly. So it's not that they'll pay it, well, they will pay it, but then they'll bill you for the payment of it. But all that's built in. So, you know, you don't have to go looking for insurance. You don't have to go looking to pay road tax. All that's covered uh, in one monthly fee. So it's very handy. Vehicles these days, from a consumer perspective, are becoming technological devices like phones, like tablets, etc. It used to be you you bought a car and you could have it 10, 15 years and, you know, be, you know, to all intents and purposes as functional on, on, on year 15 as it was on year one. 
Today, you buy a car and three years later, it's almost out of date. My current car is a Nissan Leaf, 40 kilowatt hour. So it's a fully electric car, 40 kilowatt hour. It has a range of about 250 kilometers which when I bought it was pretty leading edge, you know, unless I wanted to go into Tesla territory, which would just be ridiculously expensive. So it was pretty leading edge in terms of range. Now 250 kilometers at the low end. And I bought it in 2018. So we're talking less than three years ago. Now, two and a half years later, the, the kind of leading edge is four to 500 kilometers, almost twice as much. So, you know, why would you invest 30, 40, 50,000 pounds or euros in a vehicle when it's going to be massively out of date in three, four, five years? You know, the rental option seems much more attractive. And the sustainability potential issue then arises because do you really want to be responsible for the production of a new car every three, four, five years? Because that has a huge carbon impact. So where it starts to get interesting from the manufacturer's perspective at that point is the batteries in these vehicles, they're not like the batteries in our phones or our laptops or our tablets or any of these things that we're used to. So the, the, you're used to in your phone, the battery starting to lose its capacity after two or three years, you know, you can see the, 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 the amount of time it stays charged dropping. But that doesn't happen in cars because cars have a built-in battery management system. It's called a BMS for obvious reasons. <laughs> so they've got this BMS built in, which coddles the battery, you know, because the battery is such a huge a huge percentage of the price of the vehicle. It's such a huge component of the car, both physically and financially, that you have to absolutely baby it. So the, these batteries are spoiled, you know, how, how, they're, how they're managed in terms of their temperature and all this kind of thing so that they don't lose capacity. There are lots of studies out there showing that things like the, the Tesla batteries uh, after 500,000 kilometers are still at 90% of their original capacity. And, and the, the more recent batteries, uh, Tesla announced a new battery format in, in, on their battery day in September of last year. And the, the, the batteries that they produced there, in the testing, they're shown to be able to last 3.6 million kilometers. So when you've got batteries that can last 3.6 million kilometers, that's 10 times the average life of a European car today. When you have that, it then says, whoa, hang on a sec. I've got to completely rethink how I do cars. What I should do now is produce a single battery and then just every three, four years, swap the top and then send it back out again. I think what is very likely to happen is that as we get into this vehicle as a service and as the manufacturers are now owning the vehicles, they will want to reduce the cost to manufacture, they will want to increase their sustainability, reduce their carbon footprint. So every three, four years, they'll take the car back from whoever they rented it to, swap a few components in it. So it's now got the latest version of Bluetooth or the latest version of Wi-Fi, swap the, the tires or turn the tires or, you know, buff out any scratches on it and send it back out as a nearly new car for the next three or four years with all the latest you know, bells and whistles in it. And that way you're getting a nearly new vehicle produced every three, four years using 5% of the components that would have taken to create a new vehicle. And that's a huge sustainability win right there. Absolutely. It's their responsibility and not ours, which I guess their the vehicle. win is that if yeah. you can take the stress off us 
exactly. to do anything, you've got to win, haven't you? We're very yeah. lazy, I guess, inherently. And if it costs them, you know, 5% of the cost of manufacturing a new vehicle, then the cost to rent that vehicle tumbles as well. So it's a big win for us as well. Looks like a lot of garages and mechanics are going to have to rethink their career paths. <laughs> very much, very much. And a lot of dealerships too, potentially, because uh, one of the big advantages Tesla has is it doesn't have to deal with independent dealerships. All the Tesla dealerships are owned by Tesla, uh, whereas the incumbent manufacturers go through independent dealer networks. And of course, this is a huge problem for them because... How do you incentivize an independent dealer to sell the electric vehicles, which they're going to earn very little from? And that's already, there, there are lots of kind of secret shopper studies that are coming out that are showing that in the ind independent dealerships, if you go in asking for an EV, very often the salesperson will direct you to the equivalent internal combustion engine vehicle because that's where they make their money from the sales and service of those vehicles, not from the EVs. And this is happening even in Germany. There was a study came out about two weeks ago where they did secret shoppers on the Volkswagen dealerships all across Germany. And only something like 5% of the dealers there directed people towards the EV that they asked about originally. So, you know, it's there's a lot of work still to do. Yeah, I think you've mentioned some slightly depressing stories where the old school companies selling the dirty fuels or whatever, who are getting a bit desperate and sort of starting to put out negative publicity and not really getting with the green program. Indeed, indeed. And that, that would always be a problem when you have disruption in an industry. The incumbents will always kick against the change, and it's only the incumbents who embrace the change that manage to survive. So it, the next 10 years are going to be interesting to see whom of today's incumbents are still around in 10 years' time, because several of them won't be. Because the, the change is inevitable, uh, just because the electric transportation is so advantageous, not just in terms of sustainability, but in terms of cost, more importantly. If we, if we look at the cost of, for example, uh, a municipal bus, it costs today around 20 cent per mile to drive an electric bus over its lifetime. It costs 75 cent per mile to drive a diesel bus. So, you know, there's a huge cost saving there to bus fleet managers. And consequently, the bus market is flipping even faster than the personal vehicle market. Today, uh, about 33% of new buses sold are fully electric. And that market is changing far faster, as I said, than, than personal cars. And the money guys, they're really interested in what's going on. The stock market's really interested in sort of plant pioneers and these kind of meat replacement Indeed. substitutes. Very exciting. It is fascinating. It really is. The amount of money that's going into clean food uh, is enormous. And it's, 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 it's one of those exponential curves, you know, it's like almost like a hockey stick. And and I, I, in my uh, Climate 21 podcast, on today's podcast, I had uh, Paul O'Connor. And Paul is the uh, head of ESG debt capitalized markets for JP Morgan. And we had a fantastic conversation about uh, finance because, you know, I know nothing about money. I'm ridiculously bad at it. You know, in, in the times when people used checks, I used to tell people I couldn't bal balance a check, never mind a checkbook. Um, I'm, I'm atrocious. But I had this fascinating conversation with Paul about how uh, the 
markets are being are, are changing completely and how the flows of capital are now heading away from carbon intensive industries uh, they're running a mile from because of the associated risk and they're all heading towards the lighter and carbon free uh, industries and so that flow of money is going to completely change industries globally because obviously everything operates around money and if you can't get access to that money because you're in a carbon intensive industry you're in trouble or if suddenly you're being flooded with money because you've got a a carbon a low carbon or a carbon free idea or industry or model suddenly you know the world is your proverbial oyster. It's been a fascinating chat and we're running out of time, as they say in broadcasting. Um, I did just want to ask you about your hat, but you're not wearing it. There we go. You're, you're double hatting. I just explained to people listening that Tom is wearing an SAP baseball cap, which is very attractive. Um, and his headphones fit over the top of it, which I suspect might be why you're not wearing your Indeed. trademark. Is it a Crombie? Tell me about your trademark. It's, it's a fedora. Uh, I've a, I have a collection of them. Okay. Uh, and part of the reason is because um, your uh, listeners can't see, but I'm a blue-eyed, pale-skinned, red-haired Irishman. And, you know, living in the south of Spain, that doesn't always go down so well. It's not that and the locals give a crap. It's that the sunshine, you know, you know, doesn't doesn't uh, deal too well, or I don't deal too well with the, the, the sunshine. So I either had to start walking around with a parasol or I had to get some kind of a hat which would protect me from the sun. Uh, and, you know, while I um, can pull off a fedora pretty okay, it turns out the parasol was just a step too far. And, you know, you lose the use of one hand if you're carrying a parasol around. So I, I settled on the fedora and I, I did it purely because, you know, I, I, I needed protection from the sun, but it kind of quickly became a, a brand and I, I, I totally organically and I, I just decided I'll run with it because it seems to be working quite nicely for me. So I did. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, before all this COVID stuff, I was doing a lot of traveling and the amount of time I'd be in a queue to get on a plane and an airport or in a restaurant and someone would come up to me, you're Tom Raftery. I recognize the hat, you know, <laughs> fascinating. It was real fun. It shows just how it works, doesn't it? When you it have a, a thing. Yeah, a exactly. Brand. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, look, I'm sure people are going to want to hear more from you, Tom. So um, I think tomraftery.com forward slash podcast. Is that the best place to get you? Indeed, indeed. You'll find the links there to both the digital supply chain and the Climate 21 podcasts. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Thanks, Amanda and Lucy, for having me on. That's it from the growth business for this week. Goodbye. <laughs>